Oh, good morning, Mill City. Uh, it's so good to be together. Um, for anybody who's maybe brand new with us, my name's Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. And I would also like to take a moment and let's welcome everybody who's joining us on live stream this morning. Yeah, we're so glad that you're with us and look forward to when you're able to join us in person. Uh, likely, each one of us in this room has purchased something associated with the self-improvement in, self industry. The self-improvement industry was a $13.2 billion industry in 2022. Uh, this is quick fixes, uh, fast profits. Uh, this is life hacks, the, the ways to take shortcuts and somehow get a better life or fix this or fix that. Somebody said recently, we are improving ourselves to death. Life advice is not in short supply, but we, what we really need and what we're really after is wisdom. In the Old Testament, there are five books that are referred to as wisdom literature. Those books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And so today, we're going to be starting a series specifically going through for the summer the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, because we want to be people of wisdom, we want to be people that know how to engage life well. In order to do this, though, we need to contrast Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. Uh, maybe, maybe you're a, a proverb a day reader. Uh, there's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, and so it just fits nicely with reading one chapter for the day of Proverbs just to get some good wisdom and uh, um, principles into our lives. Uh, but, but, and Proverbs gives the impression that if we make wise decisions, then these particular good things will happen to us. And vice versa. If you make these bad decision, decisions, these bad things or not so good things will happen. And that is generally true. And so as a result, the song that maybe goes along with Proverbs is the theme song to the Lego movie, Everything is Awesome. Right? Follow these principles and everything is awesome. But Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, it says things like, it's all meaningless. It gives the impression that it doesn't matter what decisions you make. It's kind of depressing. It, the theme song might sound something like, let's get cynical. You know, like, let's just... Proverbs is, is a, a, a book of wisdom that that indicates predictability. A plus B equals C. There's a particular proverb that says, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And you're like, yes, I would like that. Good input and good wisdom for a parent, absolutely. Ecclesiastes says, we did that, and they didn't. <laughs> it's unpredictable. There are no guarantees. There's an element of randomness to the world. Proverbs says this is how the world works. Ecclesiastes says, except for when it doesn't. So which one is right? They both are. The important thing is to understand that true wisdom would be incomplete without the other, but the goal is to live in the tension, to follow the principles of Proverbs, and also know how to navigate when life doesn't work out in the ways 
that we think it should. Because together they give a more authentic view of the world and what it means to be human. Hebrew wisdom literature is an invitation from God to wrestle with the question, what does it mean to live well? So we're going to jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 1 today and uh, going through the first 11 verses. encourage you to take out your notebooks or you can follow along on version, the notes that are there. And today we're going to give kind of an overview of the book and then uh, unpack it throughout the summer, ending this series in the beginning of August. Starting in verse 1, it says, The words of the teacher, the teacher in this book is a character within the story. The word teacher means one who gathers people, who shares and kind of deposits wisdom. It says, Son of David, King in Jerusalem. Uh, many scholars believe that this book was written by Solomon, and he uses this fictitious character called the teacher within it. Uh, other scholars believe it might have been a different uh, son of David or someone else. Either way, at the end of the day, um, it isn't that important about who wrote it. Verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. What's he talking about? The repetitiveness of life. And like, is there anything else? Are we just on this hamster wheel of life? You go to work and come home and, and have dinner and go to work the next day, and it's the same over and over and over and over. It's just repetitive, like laundry. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Sounds like a, reads like a Dr. Seuss book. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. So some things are repetitive, and just in case you think you're original, ah, it's just a repeat. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Welcome to church, everybody. <laughs> so encouraging, isn't it? Throughout this book, 38 times, meaningless. Here, just in the first few verses, utterly meaningless. This word meaningless is the Hebrew word havel, H-E-V-E-L. And the definition is smoke or temporary, or fleeting. It's like chasing the wind, can't grab a hold of it. And therefore, it leads to frustration, anger, and emptiness. Now, at first glance, we might say, man, the writer of Ecclesiastes is just saying that all of life is absolutely meaningless, has no meaning. Actually, the writer of Ecclesiastes is addressing ways that we find meaning apart from God. And so is capturing the despair of a world apart from God. 
a world without him. So throughout the upcoming weeks, we will be addressing different topics that the writer of Ecclesiastes highlights. Pleasure, work, success, money, spirituality, and so on. And talk about the ways that if we put all of our meaning on them and in them, we will be disappointed. But how to handle them and look at them properly. See, because when we ask ultimate things of temporary things, all we will get is heaven. We'll get emptiness. It will leave us wanting more. See, all of these things in and of themselves aren't bad. But there is a limit to a good thing. And whenever that limit is transgressed, a good thing turns into a bad thing. Something that's life-giving can actually become life-sucking. So money is a neutral thing. The New Testament says the love of money, not money in and of itself, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Marriage, a gift from God. But if we put all of our hope in our marriage or in our dating relationship or a friendship, then it will disappoint, and what could be a life-giving thing can become a life-sucking thing. The same thing can be said about pleasure or work or success, kids' activities, spirituality, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, others' approval. A phrase found in Ecclesiastes is, anything under the sun. He's saying anything under the sun can become an idol. An idol is anything, even good things that become ultimate things. Let's give us ourselves another working definition. It is anything that humans place above and give ultimate allegiance to other than God. In other words, we put something on the throne of our hearts where God should reside. Now, here's the thing about idols. They demand worship. Now, we oftentimes think of idols as uh, made out of metal or, or clay or, or gold or bronze or something, you know, a statue that we might find in a temple and maybe people are bowing down to it, lighting incense or some sort of actual thing. And that can be an idol, and, we, and you think of bowing down to it or singing to it, but Ecclesiastes reminds us that idol worship takes more, more subtle forms. And they may not be something that you can grab a hold of and touch, but they are things that we put our hope in to make our life better, to find significance and meaning. So what if our bowing and worshiping happens with our imaginations? Happens with our credit cards, our search engines, and our calendars. Sacrificing time and energy and money. N.T. Wright, British theologian and author, writes in his book, Broken Signposts, idols always promise a bit extra, or perhaps a lot extra. An idol starts off as something good, a good part of God's good creation. But when it attracts attention and begins to offer more than it can appropriate deliver, appropriately deliver, it starts to demand sacrifices. 
Throughout Scripture, there are over a thousand references to idolatry, highlighting God's desire to be in the place that He's supposed to be, including the first of the Ten Commandments. You put no other gods before me. God's not interested in being one of many. He's interested in being the only. And so the goal of this series, if I can just come out and say it, is to dethrone the idols of our hearts and to enthrone Jesus at the center of our lives so that everything else takes its rightful place. Later in Ecclesiastes, it goes through a list of different things. There's a time to mourn and a time to laugh. A time, and the point is, there are appropriate times and places for things. Highlighting the fact that sometimes we put things in the wrong place at the wrong times. And so, as your pastor, I just want you to know that I'm going to poke some idols. It's going to feel uncomfortable, and you're going to probably like love and hate me at the same time. And you're going to be like, you know what, I think I might skip this series. We're going to be busy this summer. But I want to implore you to actually like lean in because the result of dethroning idols, as painful as it might be to see them and actually maybe even rearrange some things in our lives in order to put Jesus in his rightful place, is the best thing that we could do. And will cause our life to flourish in the ways that God designed. If you've been tracking with us for the last couple of years, last year we did a series going through the Sermon on the Mount. It took us nine months. And the goal was to focus our eyes on the kingdom of God and what it meant to follow Jesus' teachings and live into His way. The end of the Sermon on the Mount ends with this parable, if you will, of the wise and the foolish disciple. The wise and the foolish disciple both hear the teachings of Jesus, but the foolish disciple does not put them into practice. The wise disciple puts the teachings of Jesus into practice. So our word for 2023 is practice, because we want integration. We want to hear and integrate and live it out. Practice it. So throughout this year, we're going through and highlighting different practices that are part of integration, because we want to be people who seek first the kingdom of God. Because we can say that and we can hear that teaching and it is a whole other thing to integrate it into the ways that our lives look. Because when we give total worship to anything or anyone else other than God, we shrink as a human being. We become less human, not more. Because we become like what we worship. Because we cease to reflect or diminish in reflecting the image of God into the world. David Foster Wallace, famous for his commencement speech in 2005 at Kenyon College, not a follower of Jesus, said this, Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you in the ground. 
worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they're unconscious. They're default settings. He's highlighting the fact that in and of themselves, they are not sinful. To worship them, we would say, as followers of Jesus, is. See, because when we follow Jesus and we worship God, we become more human and we find ultimate satisfaction. See, the writer of Ecclesiastes highlights idolatry. And idolatry is when we look, we look to an idol as an end in itself, success being the ultimate, or money being the ultimate, or status being the ultimate. But at the end of the day, it can't hold the weight of our lives, is the message and the theme of Ecclesiastes. And the better thing, and what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to do, is to see these things that he's going to highlight throughout these upcoming weeks and in the, all of the chapters of Ecclesiastes, is to see it as an icon. Because we look to an idol as an end in itself, but we look through an icon to see something greater. In other words, we see pleasure. We don't look to pleasure as an end in itself. We look through pleasure in order to experience and see the pleasure found in Jesus. See, there's something beautiful about eating a wonderful meal. If that experience is the end and of itself, it's going to, we're going to leave it feeling wanting. But if we see it as a picture of the coming feast of Jesus' return and the goodness of all things and everything being made right, it becomes a window. And it becomes a window to see Jesus in his kingdom. And that means that those things then can be enjoyed in the right place at the right times. See, because once we accept the limitations of something, we can accept them as gifts. Instead of making them idols, they become gifts. Now, this series will require brutal honesty. Because most of us, at one time or another, find ourselves tempted to move towards idol worship. It's been said that the human heart is an idol factory. That we can be tempted to just crawl, allow something to crawl and creep its way back up on to the throne of our hearts. And so... My encouragement for all of us is that we would be honest. Ask what we are asking to truly satisfy us. To satisfy the longings of our hearts and maybe also ask the question, is this satisfying the longings of my heart? And this includes me. I know what I'm tempted towards making into an idol. I'm tempted towards making work into an idol, success into an idol, approval of others into an idol. So 
it's helpful for me to have named those, to be aware of them, because awareness helps me to be able to say, you know what? Sabbath is really important for me because it forces me to stop working. And to say, God, I'm done working for the week. I'm not going to work today. I'm just going to delight. I'm going to waste some time today, which is really hard for me. But see, that practice pushes on an idol. And when we can name it, not only is it helpful for us to name so that we can be aware of it and maybe build some practices into our lives, it's also important so we can name it to others. This is why city groups are so important. We are a church not with groups like, oh yeah, if you got some time. We are a church of groups because life transformation, spiritual transformation happens in the context of community. It's so important not for us just to be aware of it by ourselves, but for us to be able to say, hey, I just want you to know my, I, my struggle is approval of others. So I, I, would, I need you to pray for me. And I want you to ask me this question or that question. Or maybe you would say it's finances and you'd say, I need somebody to look at my checkbook. And you might say, wow, that's really intense. It is. But it's worth it. And it's so important that we live our lives open to God with one another. So our weekly practice this week as we start the series is to read Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and along with that to pray Psalm 139, 23 and 24, which says, search me, search me God and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We want God to test us, to find the anxious and offensive ways in us. So read Ecclesiastes 1, read and pray Psalm 139, 23, and 24, and ask God to open your eyes to see any idols in your life. Now, hopefully the Holy Spirit drops it into your head, drops it in your heart. You're able to see it. Maybe some of you are already aware. But I also want to kind of throw out a few different questions that maybe will help to, to start loosening the soil and unearthing some of the possibilities for each one of us. That maybe we'll say, oh, I wonder about this. So I've got five questions for each one of us to ask throughout this week and throughout this series. The first one is what disproportionately disappoints you? Now, life has disappointments. It is, disappointment. it is disappointing when you get a flat tire. It is disappointing when you don't get the grade that you were hoping for. It's disappointing when you don't get the promotion that you were working towards or whatever. But when you're disproportionately dis- disappointed, like when you fly off the handle kind of disappointment, when you, when you turn into a rage monster, uh, if it, depending on what might go on, you get absolutely overwhelmed with disappointment because things didn't go your way. Maybe it would indicate an idol of control. What do you constantly complain about? Emphasis on constantly. Whining shows what has power over us. Are you whining and complaining about money? 
Are you whining and complaining about a lack of respect? Are you whining and complaining about being uncomfortable or stressed? Number three, where do you make financial and time sacrifices? It's one thing, we all have time and we all have some money, so it does go in different places, but what are we sacrificing it for? You're sacrificing it for comfort? Are you sacrificing it for your kids' activities? Are you sacrificing it? Where does it go? The Scripture says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you, if you look at your treasures and work it backwards, you usually end up, you will end up at your heart. And does your heart, what does it say? If someone were to open up your check register, what would it say about you? Number four, what worries you? Like, like what wakes you up at night? What keeps you up at night? What makes you anxious? Like maybe anxiety-inducing type of things. We live in the safest generation in history. Insurance, medical advances, technological advances, protection, security, systems, and yet we are the most fearful and anxious generation in history. What does that say about us? Is safety an idol? If you find anxiety, now I recognize there might be chemical issues, so I don't want to dismiss that, but if you find yourself in a place where you deal with anxiety and anxiousness, anxiety is a symptom. I have battled anxiety in my lifetime, and, and specifically when we first started Mill City Church. I battled anxiety for the first year. I woke up in the middle of the night, could not go back to sleep. And so, of course, I might ask, God, take the anxiety away. But really, I became brutally honest and started to identify that I had an idol of failure or not failing. And it wasn't so much that I was worried about not putting food on the table. I was worried about what other people would think. So my reputation was an idol. So if you find yourself anxious, waking up in the middle of the night, unable to sleep, is there, what, what's underneath it? Is there something deeper that speaks to something that has become ultimate? And then lastly, where do you go in pain? When things are not right, when, thing, when you're upset, when things are out of control, do you go to food, shopping, a phone, a screen, social media, Netflix binge, another glass of wine, comfort? Where do you escape? And maybe those things in and of itself, that extra glass of wine, that extra, that extra show, that extra whatever the extra, wherever it is, that may be the idol. Or it may actually just identify that Jesus isn't the ultimate. Either way, hopefully these five questions are ways of getting underneath the surface to understand maybe the subtlety of the idols of our lives.
Ecclesiastes starts off with the phrase, the words of the teacher. In this Old Testament wisdom book, it's, it's this fictitious character. But in the reality of our lives, the teacher, we have a teacher called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that wants to teach us and guide us, and convict us, counsel us and comfort us. And we have Jesus, the ultimate teacher. The Holy Spirit reminding us of the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus, the teacher, would say that there's nothing outside of you that can truly satisfy the thirst inside of you. He says, I can give you unfathomable satisfaction in the core of your being, regardless of external circumstances. See, because Jesus is the one who redeems us from emptiness and meaninglessness. He gives proper and true satisfaction and meaning to all of life so that they can be enjoyed for the gifts that they are. That we're not looking to them to give them they, some, to give us something they can't give us because we have found ultimate satisfaction fully and completely in Jesus. And so maybe you find yourself here today, first time in church or first time in a long time, and maybe you would identify, yeah, I've run after a bunch of other things and I am finding them lacking. And I encourage you today to cross a line of faith. Put your trust in Jesus. Put the weight of your life on Jesus. And find that He is the one that ultimately satisfies. He will satisfy every longing. He will meet the deepest of your needs. That it is in Him we find our greatest significance. That we find purpose in life. And maybe it's for the first time, and maybe it's for the first time in a long time, as a commitment to say simply and sincerely under your breath, Jesus, I give you my life. I trust you. It's a simple and important way we start a relationship with him. It's not the only thing that we need to say to Jesus, but it is the beginning of a relationship of entering into the kingdom of God, experience the life of God in the kingdom. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I'm interested. You've piqued my interest, but I have a lot of questions. Can I encourage you to consider Alpha? Alpha starts here at Mill City in just a couple of weeks. It's a great, safe space to be able to ask questions and process through some of these things about Jesus and who He is, the meaning of life. You can indicate that on your connection card. I'd be happy to communicate details with you. It starts in just a couple of weeks. And for some of you, maybe in this room, you'd say, I'm a follower of Jesus and all is good. I want to read Philippians chapter 3. It says, but whatever, whatever were gains to me, this is the Apostle Paul writing, he says, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. What he's saying is, all of the good things of life are gifts, but in comparison to Jesus, it's so 
wildly different that it's, I consider it garbage in comparison to knowing Jesus. For all of us and every one of us in this room, my prayer is that we would all see the glorious nature of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the profound depth and satisfaction found in knowing Jesus. As good as it is, Paul says he considers it rubbish. Even the goodness of life is compared is, is empty in comparison to the goodness and the fullness of Jesus. So wherever you are in your spiritual walk, I would love to take a moment and just pray for all of us. If you would, maybe open your hands like this as a way of symbolizing openness to God and surrender. So Holy Spirit, we ask, Would you work in our hearts? Would you help us to see the things that maybe we don't really want to see? Would you expose any anxious, offensive ways in us? The things that are gurgling underneath the surface that have somehow taken a hold of our lives, even good things, kids, and marriage, and spirit, spiritual activity, and work, things that you've given to us that are good and gifts, but somehow have become ultimate. That the reality of our lives indicate that we are bowing down to them, we're sacrificing to and for them. So today I ask that you would expose them and that we would begin to see and engage these things not as idols, but as icons, as windows to see you and the fullness of life found in the kingdom of God. And so we welcome the work of your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and the humility and the courage to engage them, to offer them to you, to rearrange the things of our lives that need to be rearranged so that you, Jesus, might receive the worship that you are worthy of. That you're worthy of it all. Worthy of all worship, worthy of all praise, worthy of being king on the throne of every one of our hearts. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen.